Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard Podcast. Our mission is simple. Find God, find others, find yourself. That's it. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information on Reveal, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. So we've been on a series called Emoticons, where we've been uh, trying to gain control over our emotions before they gain control over us. And there's been a question that we've been asking that kind of drives our series, and that is, are your emotions contributing or controlling your life? In other words, when you look through your biggest regrets in life, your biggest mistakes, do they revolve around an emotion or a mood that went unchecked, uh, unnoticed, uh, and just kind of spilled out of control, and now you're living with the regrets, even possibly to this day. And so we're looking at how can we minimize the regrets that, that come from emotions that run out of control? How can we move from emoti confusion to emoti control? Week one, we talked about guard the heart, and we said that if the heart is polluted, then everything downstream is toxic, including our emotional outbursts. Week two, we asked the question, what makes you happy? And we said that happiness is more about a who than a what, which is often we push against that because we think if we had more what, more things in our life, we could be happy. But we kind of uh, debunked that myth. You have to go back and listen to it. And then last week, we talked about the blessed life, and we looked at what Jesus had to say in Matthew 5, where Jesus lays out for us how to build the blessed life. He gives the metaphor of building a house. And he says that if you do what I say, you will be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. And that metaphor means that it will take time. It will take perseverance. It will take persistence and, and effort and sweat equity. But he says that if you do what I've just said, that you will build your house. He's not telling you how to build a house. He's telling you how to build a life. And so Jesus says, if you do what I say, you will build a life that is blessed. And we said in the end, the blessed life, or even happiness, is not something that is immediately accessible. In other words, you can't do something today and expect to wake up tomorrow to have a blessed existence, right? It takes sowing and reaping. We said that uh, the blessed life is more like a farmer and less of a programmer, that you sow and you reap the benefits, and whatever you sow into, you reap that back. And so there's been times in all of our lives where we've sown into negative things and we've reaped that back. And just as we've done that, we can sow into the things of the kingdom. And God says his promise back to us is that we will reap life. Galatians 6 talks about that. And so sowing and reaping applies to all of the key things in life. Just as you sow your way into trouble, you can sow your way out of trouble. What you sow into your marriage is what you will reap. What you sow into your physical body is what you will reap back. What you uh, sow into your spiritual development is what you will reap back. And what you sow into your finances is what you will reap back as well. Our topic today is the emotion of money. We like to think that money is just about a paycheck, making our wallets fat, or that money is just about a uh, bank account. But really, there are emotions that are connected to money. Let me give you an example. One emotion that can be attached to money is an emotion of fear. Um, Have you ever done something, if you're married, 
and you were a little afraid to tell your spouse what you bought out of the fear of, of the reaction. Maybe a small business owner and you put 10 grand on a credit card to get the computers that you need to get the business off the ground. And There's some fear about letting your spouse know what you did. Or, or when we were first married, we played a game that brought great fear upon us. We didn't want to play the game. We were forced into playing that game because we were broke. And the name of the game we called was, let's see if our debit card will work at the grocery store. And that's the game where you load up the conveyor belt, the cashier rings it all up, and at the end you swipe it and you pray to God your house payment hasn't hit yet, right? Maybe you've played a version of that game was let's see if we can get gas today. Anybody else swipe it and get and decline? Happened to us so many times, every time we would go to use it, there would be that fear and anxiety of, is this going to work? Another emotion tied to our uh, money, our finances, can be shame. There is shame when maybe you can't afford to be part of the Christmas exchange at work or with the family or the shame of telling your children there's just no money for college or um, I was at CVS yesterday and I swiped my card and I was using the church pin number for my personal card and the machine made a loud sound saying that it was declined. And so I said, oh, I used the wrong pin and I swiped it again and I used the wrong pin again and it went and the shame came over me and so I said it just came out of my mouth I said oh there's plenty of money in that account because I needed him to know that I'm not broke that it, shame has a, there's nothing worse than that walk of shame that when you're trying to pay for something and there's no money there right and so there's shame it can also be uh, anger maybe anger anger at yourself for putting yourself in a financial situation uh, Anger at a family member for putting you in a financial situation. Uh, Anger at a spouse for putting you in a bad financial situation. So there's fear and shame and anger. All emotions that revolve around this thing of money. But there's also joy. And there's also such things as power and the feeling of status or superiority. That comes when you have an abundance of money. The emotion of money is what drives us to keep up with the Joneses. To keep up with a certain appearance. The emotion of money is why we feel better when we're driving a certain car or living in a certain house or when we have a certain label on our, on our shoes or our bag or on our clothing. That's all the emotional side of money. The emotional side of money can cause all kinds of problems when you're married, especially if the way you feel about money differs than the way your spouse feels about money. After service today, we're going to put a, a, a short questionnaire on Facebook that you can pick up, and it will tell you how you feel about money. So like us on Facebook, and you'll get it. For example, do you view money as status? Do you feel that money is more about security? Or is money more about enjoyment for you? Or is it about control? Now, when we were first married, my wife came from a house that didn't have a lot, and so she viewed money as security. She was a hoarder. I came from a dad who spent everything he made, and for me, money was just about enjoyment. So you know what happened in our marriage? It was this, because I'm looking to spend, she's looking to hoard, and we kind of had to figure this thing out together. So you can take that questionnaire, it's about 20 questions, that'll help you determine how you view money. And I'm telling you up front, some of the questions are very difficult to answer Because it's rather embarrassing when you think through the reason why we purchase certain things. But it will be uh, very telling uh, and insightful for you. Money not only has the ability 
to affect your emotions, but money has the ability, your money has the ability to affect other, others' emotions around you. If you ever come into money, you will find that people are far nicer to you than when you were broke. When I was working at Phoenix Motor Company, I was a service writer there, we're a Mercedes dealership, and we would have farmers that would come into the sales office to buy a car for their wife, and they'd come in with old Levi's, stained, dirty, old 10-year-old boots, cowboy hat, old shirt, and nobody paid any attention to these men until someone ran a credit check. And as soon as the credit check was ran and they found out that their wallet was fat, man, everyone loved them suddenly. Everyone's coming around, everyone's being friendly because your money has a way of affecting other people's emotions. So here's what I want us to know as we jump in today. Money is more than a paycheck. It's more than a bank account. And we need to determine how we move from emotive confusion to emotive control regarding the emotions surrounding money. So let's pray today. So Father, we ask that you would speak to us as we always ask that uh, it would not just be my words, but it would be you speaking to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak to us beyond my words and beyond my message, that you would be to each of us exactly what we need at this moment. My hope is is that each of us would ask you to personally come and speak and to rest upon us and to speak over us and transform us into being the men and women that you desire us to be. And so we give you the reign to speak even the difficult words today. And for the offering, God, that uh, will be received later, let us always be mindful about being the representation of Jesus in our community, in the schools that we work in, in our own church community, in the ministries we're involved with uh, around the world, in Mexico that we were recently in, and India later this year, uh, that we would represent you well in all things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I was with a family member, and they had a pay stub in their car, in the cup holder. And I kind of did that, you know, that fake stretch so I can kind of lean in to, to see it because it was, you know, wrapped up in a, in a circle. And I saw the, the, the paycheck, and it was equal to almost just a, about four months of my pay. And I remember there was a rush of emotions that went through uh, Part of it was jealousy. Uh, the other part was frustration. There was even a little bit of anger, thinking, how can one person make that much, and I'm making so little? And, and one of the other emotions was pride, because I actually caught myself thinking, I would be better at your job than you are. And if you make that, imagine what I could make at your job. And I went home, and I told my wife, I said, did you know that so-and-so makes this much money? And without even skipping a beat, she doesn't even look at me, and she says, and she's doing something in the kitchen, kitchen, well, you know money can't buy you happiness. And for a moment, I hated her for saying that. <laughs> because you know how wrong that sounds, right? You know within you, you're like, really, I would like to prove you wrong. And if there is a way to get on that case study, I would like to be a test subject, drop a couple million on me, follow me around for 10 years, I'll do whatever interview you want, I'll prove it wrong. 
because it feels right emotionally that more money should make life more better. Now, that's not good English, proper English, but right? more money should make life more better. And so here's my question for you. Based upon where you're at today, how much money would it take to make life better for you? How much money would it take to make life better? To make a life that is easier, to put you in a better mood, less stress, more peace, more fun, life easier. What would that look like? Now regardless of your age and what you make, most of us would answer this question the exact same way. How much money would it take? And our answer would be a little more than I'm making now. And that answer will not change throughout life unless something changes within us. My first job was at Taco Bell, three thirty-five an hour. I got offered a job, thank you, I still eat there. Got offered a job at Drug Emporium making $4.05. And I thought, $4.05, I have hit the jackpot. Really, because at 16, that was a lot of money when three thirty-five was the minimum. And then I got a job at Sears uh, Automotive making $5 an hour. And I moved from writing service to doing sales, batteries and tires, and I was making about $11 an hour. And at $11 an hour, I thought, if I could just make a little more, then life would be better. So I took a job, Phoenix Motor Company, the Mercedes place in the body shop. I was making $500 a week, and I thought for sure my financial problems are solved. But you know what happened? $500 a week, about six months, someone offered me a job writing service that paid about $1,200 to $1,500 a week. And I thought, 12, 15. I was 22 years old, and I thought, ah, yeah, life's going to be better. Do you know what I thought about a year after that? Making 56, 62,000. Young man. I thought, if I could just make about 2,000 a week, life would be better. Because there's a little problem that all of us encounter. The more you make, the more you, yeah. The more you make, the more you spend. And I would make more, and for a little bit, I breathed easy. And I was like, why am I driving this car with the money I'm making? And before I knew it, the margins shrunk, and you've been there, to where I started thinking, if I could just have a little bit more. Matter of fact, more is what we associate with money. The more money, the more better life would be. But we've been living under the idea of more our entire life. And be honest with yourself, have you ever achieved the life that you desired by getting more? And most of us would say, not for very long. Because with more money came more spending, which put me in the same situation. And so maybe if it more isn't the answer, maybe here's the answer. Maybe it's not more, but maybe it's manage. Maybe the answer to our emotional confusion over money is not more money. Maybe the answer to our emotional stability over money is not more, but it is manage. And maybe moving from confusion to control is about how we begin to manage what we have been given. Because anytime you mismanage anything in life, including money, ultimately you undermine the very life that you sought to build for yourself. Now so critical is this idea of money that Jesus weighed in on the subject. And he said that if you don't manage your money, then your money will manage you. In other words, he said that it it, it will run your life, it will rule your emotions, it has the potential to hinder your relationships, and in the end, you will forfeit the peace of mind that you so desperately want, and it will put you on a pace of life that is not sustainable. Here's how Jesus says it. 
in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Strange words he's using when he's talking about money. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the others, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And it seems good so far, but then he drops this. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, sweet little Jesus, so young, so naive, that he just doesn't get culture. And he would actually say that you cannot serve God and money, because if I was going to say something like, I would say you cannot serve God and the devil. Or you can't serve God in sin, or you can't serve God in pleasure, you can't serve God in yourself. But Jesus pulls this out of a hat somewhere, and he says, no, 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 no. You cannot serve God and money. And when he says money, the, the, the actual better translation is any of your possessions. Jesus says, you cannot be equally devoted to God and your possessions. One will always take priority and precedent in your life. And we look at that word, such words like master, and we think, money's not my master. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not devoted to money. I don't submit myself to, to, to money. But, but Jesus actually has a way of coming at this that when we break it down, it actually starts to make sense. Jesus gives us the warning that if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we can become so devoted to our possessions, to our stuff, the stuff you have, the stuff you want, the stuff you're planning on getting, the stuff you're scheming right now in order to make room for it so you can afford it. He says that if you're not careful, that your stuff, your possessions, can eventually become your master. So here's a devotion assessment for us when we, when we think about our possessions, our stuff. Do you intently pursue more stuff? Think through that in your life. Is there anything that you're scheming right now to make it work? Have you ever figured out a way to afford that car payment? You thought, well, if I, if I just cut down on Starbucks and quit buying meat for dinner, I can make this payment. That is, that's, being, that's pursuing because of your devotion to stuff. Do you overly guard and protect your possessions? Does keeping or getting more stuff weigh heavily in your decisions throughout life? Has your desire for more stuff caused you to do something that you would later regret or make a purchase that you would later regret? Have you done something unethical, how big or how small, you can answer, unethical to acquire more stuff? Have, have you given in to an impulse buy that has negatively affected your well-being and or your peace of mind? And if you're like me, your answer to most of those questions is yes. I've been there on all of them. And Jesus would say, you are devoted to your stuff. You are actually devoted to, you, you are committed to your stuff, and you're committed to getting more stuff. We're all in that same situation, or at least most of us. And, he, and here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, listen. The moment... That your devotion for more, the moment your desire to acquire more stuff overrides that little voice in you that says, I really shouldn't do this. Jesus says, the moment that your devotion for more overrides your otherwise rational thinking, Jesus says, in that moment, you have been mastered. And how many times have we purchased something done something, 
where in the back of our mind we thought, probably shouldn't stretch this far for this car or for this house, but you wanted it, you craved it, you needed it, you figured out a way, you were going to put it on a credit card because I don't want to wait to save up for it. And Jesus says, in that moment that you, and we all do it, in that moment that, that your desire for it, your, your appetite for more, overrides your better judgment, you have been mastered. Man, Jesus is smart. Because we've all been there. We've all had those moments where we're living in those moments. And not only does it master you once, but it masters you every time you need to write a check that you cannot afford. And Jesus says, look, the greatest competitor for your heart will be your possessions. And it's just the truth. I mean, if we can, it's painful, but if we take a step back, Jesus is right. My greatest impulse buy, about two years into our marriage, uh, three years into our marriage, we're driving by Glendale, and there's Larry Miller Toyota. And 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, they close at 9, and my wife and I in the car, and I just pull into Larry Miller, and an hour later, I'm driving out with a brand new Toyota four-wheel drive. Didn't do any research, wasn't planning on it, just thought, no, let's go get one. I blamed my wife. She was in the car. She knew what I was doing. She said nothing. <laughs> about four months later, I changed jobs, went from uh, one dealership to another, took about a third cut in pay, was trying to get into be management, and you know, took a pay cut. And then about six months after that, uh, my pastor came and said, hey, would, you know, we'd like you to be a pastor on staff, which meant I lost another you know, third of, of money at least. And long story short, I was broke with a payment I couldn't afford. And in my mind, I knew it was a bad decision when I did it, but my desire for more overrode the rational, wise side of me, and in that moment, I was mastered by my devotion to more stuff. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. I mean, he's brilliant how he breaks this down for us. And your story may look a little bit different, but you've been mastered, I'm sure, at some point. You had a couch, but you saw a nicer couch, and so you bought the couch, and now you don't even like the couch. Zero percent interest for 15 months. You thought for sure you'd have it paid off, and 15 months rolled around, and you only had $200 left, but you didn't realize that 15 months of interest has been piling up, and now all of a sudden there's another $600 on it. You think, what was I thinking? You were mastered. Or, or you know, you had an idea of you needed a car, and you went to the dealership with a modest budget, but when you got there, man, the, the, the top of the line was so nice. And so you blew your budget apart because you went with the deluxe model, and now you got leather seats, uh, heated leather seats, which are very valuable in the wintertime here when it's 80 degrees out, right? You were mastered. And we all have stories like that. Or you went to the timeshare presentation because they were giving you free cruise tickets. But when you were there, they made such good sense that you would actually be losing money if you don't buy it. And so you bought it, now you can't give it away. And in that moment, on some level, you were mastered by your desire to have more stuff. Jesus knew that the greatest competitor, the chief competitor for our heart, would be our stuff. And so strong is the pool that it will lead us into decisions that will undermine the very life we seek for ourselves. 
I've been there, you've been there, where the very car that we thought would bring us happiness, the house that we thought would give us the life we wanted, turned out to be the device that is strangling us. And when we're unwise, when we're mastered by this thing, when our emotions are taken over, the very life we seek to establish is the life that we forfeit. Let's look at the path to financial slavery. It starts with this word called discontentment. And here's how we're defining discontent, the thought of it. How can I be satisfied with what I have when I know what I could have or I know what you have? Have you ever felt that way? How, how can I be satisfied with this when I know I could have this or I know that you have better? There, there's a word that sparks discontentment and that's the word of awareness. So we're going to kind of build a path here. So, so it goes awareness plus discontentment. Awareness is, uh, I, was, I, was, I was satisfied with my old phone until I heard rumors of the new phone. And I was satisfied with my old car until I saw the commercial for the new car and the new improved model and the new features. And, and I became aware of something out there that's better than what I have. And suddenly, where I once was satisfied when I became aware that something is better, now suddenly I am discontent with what I have. And discontentment, add to that, greed, and here's how we'll define greed. The assumption, you're not going to like this, the assumption that all you have is yours and for your consumption. Now in America, we would say, well, what's wrong with this thinking? Because if I earned it, it should be all mine. And I would push back a little bit and say, well, well, why can't you give a little bit of it away? And you would say, because it's all mine. And I would say, that's greed. The idea that it's all mine, it's all for my consumption, it's all about me, and the biblical definition that God would say is that everything you own is yours and it's for your consumption, and God would say, that's greed. It doesn't matter how much it is that you're looking at, it's the idea that everything you have is yours. Greed is not after you achieve a certain level of income, greed is whatever you currently have is mine and for my consumption, and the Bible would say that is greed. So you add to awareness and bring in some discontentment and add the greed that is so prevalent in our society and it leads us down a path of debt. And debt is where most of us find ourselves today and it's painful to think about and you're not going to like this next part of the message. Because already we're starting to squirm and you feel the heaviness and, and you don't like where it's going, but there's good news if you'll bear with me. Uh, Andy Stanley has this thing where he says, I want is better than I owe. And it really is true. I wish someone, if you're young, I wish someone taught me this when I was 20, that I want is better than I owe. Because with I want, there comes certain tensions, you know, that you want it, but you can't get it. And, and you're, you know, you can try to figure out a way in your heart every time you see it drive down the road. You can be, wouldn't it be great? Or if you drive by the model home and, oh my goodness, it would be fantastic. Or someone's wearing something. There's tension when you want but can't have. But if you think that tension is bad, if you think that tension's difficult, there's a worse tension. I want but don't have is not nearly as bad as have but can't pay. Now that's a bad tension. And if you've ever been there where you wanted but can't have versus have but can't pay, 
you would take the wanted but can't have any day. We've, we've all been there. Here's the thing. Better is to want but can't buy than to owe but can't pay. There's some wisdom for us in this idea of our money and how our emotions grip us when it comes to our money. I want is between you and God. So when I want something, God can say, wait. He can say, save. He can say, no. He can say, later. But when I owe, that is now not between me and God. It is also between me and the person that holds the note. And God stands on the person that I made the commitment to. And God says, pay up. And so better to want but can't buy than to owe and can't pay. Ask yourself this. Has discontentment ever made you happy? Has it ever added anything to life when you just have to have more? Has greed ever made life better? Your desire to acquire. Has debt ever made you happy? Does anyone sing praises to Jesus when the visa bill arrives every month? And here's what's odd. Here's what's odd. We know We know that discontentment, we know that greed, we know that debt will never lead us to the life that we want. And yet we continue to put ourselves in the situation of being discontent, greedy, and more in debt. Even though we know there's no chance it will bring us the life we want. But the reason we keep going back to it is what Jesus says, because we have been mastered by it. And you are now enslaved to your desires. And the very thing that you know is harmful for you, you think that the next one will be different. And Jesus says, it's never going to be different. He's brilliant in this. And it, it, it it is something that lies within us. And so here's, here's my close. Maybe it's time. If more isn't the answer and manages the answer, And if Jesus says you can't serve two masters, here's the question. Who's managing your money? Because whoever is in control of your heart is the one who is in control. uh, Whoever is in control of your finances is the one who is in control of your heart. And so who is managing your money? And maybe it's time today that we put a new CFO, chief financial officer, in charge and submit even our finances to the lordship of Jesus. Now, I want you to prepare yourself because I'm about to give you the talk. Anytime pastors talk about money in church, there are two reasons that the church becomes angry and nobody likes this talk. The first is because, in my opinion, pastors have done a disservice to their church, and we have used strong-arm tactics and guilt uh, to, to get you to open your wallets, and pastors have, 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 have uh, told you that if you give, you will be blessed, and pastors have, have told you to trust God in your finances, but we're really bad at trusting God with the church's finances, and so we're constantly asking you for more finances because it puts our mistrust to rest. And for the longest time, for the last seven years, I never wanted to be associated with those types of pastors that are constantly pushing money on the church. And so if you've been here any amount of time, you know I've never done that to you. Matter of fact, the number of times that we've had a financial series only on money in this church in seven years, one time for three weeks. The number of times that I've given a message just on finances in seven years, probably four or five times. So I have tried to distance myself 
because I know how you feel about pastors who talk about money. But I am also standing before you that you can't put that on me because I've never done it. And I will never do it. But in my distancing myself, I will also tell you I've done a disservice to you because I've never taught you how to worship God through your giving. And I've never taught you what it means to put God above your finances. And I've never really taught about what it means to, to, to not be mastered by that which we are all mastered by. And so there's the reason that anytime I, anybody talks about money, we become very defensive. Part of it is pastors have done a disservice. And the second reason why we become so upset, and some of you are upset with me right now that I'm talking about this, the second reason we get upset is because what Jesus said is true and we have been mastered by our finances. And anytime anyone brings up anything about money, you are enslaved to it and you become defensive and you become furious. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Either you will devote everything to God or you will try to devote some things to God but you will be more devoted to your money. Do, do you know why God asks for a tithe? A tithe is 10%. You know why God asks for a tithe? It's because it's one way that we can demonstrate that money will not be our master. And some people have no opinion on anything in the Bible except when it comes to the tithe. And there will be some people that will send me emails or will come up afterwards and you'll be dogmatic about, well, the tithe is an Old Testament principle and you don't, you've never had an opinion on anything in the Bible except for this issue of the tithe and it's an Old Testament principle. And I would say, okay. But then if you look at the New Testament principle of generosity, it even blows away the tithe. The New Testament talks about the tithe just being the starting point. And so the reason why God says to be generous, the reason why God says start with a tenth is because it is the way of demonstrating that God, you are ultimately in charge of my finances and I will not allow money to master me. And we hate that. We just do. And I know some of you, you're working up the numbers in your head and you're thinking, well, there's no way that I could ever do a tithe and who does this guy think he is? And, 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 and it just, just ask yourself the simple question, the starting point. Is God the master of your money? And if your answer is yet, yes, I would say, how can you prove it? What does it look like? Now, I'm going to step on some toes here. The reason why some of us can't tithe, if we're honest, is because we've been mastered by our devotion to stuff, and we are driving our tithe, or we're living in our tithe, or we're wearing our tithe, or we're eating our tithe. Here's my encouragement to you. If you want to move from emoti confusion to emoti control of your finances, and you know the anxiety, the unrest, all of that comes with it when you are in debt. If you want to move from that, from confusion to control, it starts by putting someone greater than yourself over your finances. And God says, here's what I ask. Start by putting a tenth back to me. It's your way of demonstrating that I own it all to begin with and that money has no hold on you. And my, that's my encouragement to you. Whether Whatever that looks like for you, whatever. I, listen, I have never in seven years gone through the church records of who gives what. I don't care. I don't want to be wrapped up in that stuff. But what I will tell you is that if you want to be honoring to God, 
If you want to move from all the mess that comes with the emotional confusion that surrounds money, if you want to move into health, it starts by putting Jesus over your finances. And Jesus says, you can do that, as he says. If you do my words, you can be like a man who builds his house on the rock, but if you only hear my words, you're building your house on the sand. And so that's our decision. That's what Jesus is saying, that you will have a master and it will either be God or it will be your possessions, but they will conflict with one another, and he knew it because he created us. And if we're honest, the biggest competitor that I have is my stuff. That's just the reality. Take a moment to sit before God. Forget about anything that I said that may have upset you. I just want you to start with the question. Is God over your finances? And if he's not, listen to his leading to begin to sow into principles that will bring you out of the emotional confusion that you're currently in. And the good news is that if you sow into kingdom principles, he will lead you out. That is his promise. He says that my word will never re return void without, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so whatever God speaks, that truth, God says, if you put it into practice, you will reap the benefits of it. I'm not asking you to give out of fear. I'm not asking you to take this step out of some blessing. I'm asking that you would consider putting God over every part of your life. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. And for some of us, it's a journey that we'll need to start. And it starts today. But how sweet will it be to one day lie down and have margin in our finances and not have to worry about how we're paying the bills or juggling bills one to pay the other. How great will it be to step into that season of blessing where we have enough margin because we were no longer mastered by our devotion to more stuff. And that is what I pray over our church, that we would step into that season, that we would begin to sow into that season. And it will take time, and it will take work, and it will take dedication but God's promise is, is if you stay on that path, you will build a life on the rock. I pray a blessing over our church today, Lord. Bless them. Bless their families, bless their personal lives, bless their health. I pray your blessing upon them. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, financial peace, right? It's one of our groups.
Some of you may want to sign up if there's a problem with paying for it because financial peace charges, we don't, but they do. See me, we'll figure it out. Maybe you want to meet with somebody who's really good uh, uh, at finances and setting up a budget. We have people that would meet with you as well on that. Take that first step. Don't forget, get an evite on our website. Invite people to the Super Bowl service next week. It's going to be fantastic, and I'll see you then. If you're a guest or if you need prayer, I'd love to meet you down here. God bless you guys. Take care.